Um, good morning, everyone. If I stand here, I can probably see most of most people. Um, there we go. Good. Well, do keep that passage open. John chapter 18. We're uh, in the second part of this series, journeying to the cross through uh, in our preparations for Easter. Um, let me pray, and then we're going to look at this um, wonderful passage together. Heavenly Father, this is a, a familiar passage to us, and yet it's so full of glorious truths that remind us of who you are and remind us just how precious we are to you. So I pray as we look at them together now that you would open our eyes to see the glorious things in this passage, and that our lives might be different as a result. And please speak to us, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Great. Well, if you were here last week, um, we looked at that wonderful prayer that Jesus prayed um, for himself, for his disciples, and for the disciples to come. It's a wonderful time in, in the book of John where Jesus sort of comes to his heavenly father in a time of great need, and he pours out his heart to God. And we looked last week, didn't we, at three things. Uh, you and I are infinitely precious to God. We thought about our fingerprint. Nobody in the universe has one like you. Infinitely precious to God. We thought about being protected, that God, through Jesus, protects us in death. The one thing that none of us have any control over ultimately and have no answer to, Jesus Christ does have control over and does have an answer to. So we thought about being not only precious but also protected in the loving hands of God. And then we thought about the third P, which was having a purpose. If I am special to God and if he protects my life, he has a purpose for me, not just to live life my own way, but to live life to please him. And we thought about that word eternal life or that phrase eternal life, speaking of a relationship with the God who made us. That's what we were created for. Yes, eternal life is talking about quantity. It's eternal. It goes on forever. But the emphasis is particularly on eternal in the sense of the life of God living the life that God created us to live. Uh, Often we think that to be truly human is to live an autonomous life with me at the center and forget God. But that degrades what it means to be a human because we were created for a relationship with God. Uh, And we were thinking about that together. And so we come into chapter 18 and it's a very sad chapter as Rob was just reading to us. Wasn't it a deeply sad story as we see Jesus going to the cross? But what he does on the cross where he's heading is he deals with the problems and the outworkings of human autonomy. When we put ourselves at the center of the universe and we ignore God, it's through the work of Jesus on the cross that that whole curse has been reversed and we can be back into that relationship with the God who made us, that relationship that he created us for, that he could achieve his purposes in our life. So we're going to look at that together. But before we do... um, You'll be familiar with names. Names often mean something. Uh, Perhaps when your mum or dad named you, there was something significant about your name. You'll know the name of your, meaning of your name. I came across some very odd names. Um, Slightly comical if you're the person who named this child, but pretty horrible if you're the child himself. Just a few little funny ones. There's one guy whose surname was Still, and his parents named him Stanley. You can imagine him in the school playground when he's a bit naughty and the teacher sort of shouts across the playground, stand still, come here. And he's very confused. (laughs) What am I meant to do? Uh, There's another guy who was a window cleaner and uh, someone said, oh, what's the name of that window cleaner I saw you working on your house last week? I'd like to have him over at my house. Uh, And they said, oh, his his name is Terry Bull. (laughs) Not a very good window cleaner. 
Um, this one just very unfortunate. I don't know what the parents were thinking. The surname was Curtin. She was named Annette. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the last one, you imagine if there was a roll call, maybe in the army, and uh, this lady here who was in the army was called Anna Sassin. <laughs> so as soon as the, the name is re uh, reeled out on the roll call, everyone sort of scatters in one direction. Uh, silly names. But the point is, names often mean something. When it comes to God, names are really significant. Names convey both God's character, but also his work. Abraham. Anyone know what the name Abraham means? The father of many. Brilliant. Someone's switched on the front. Moses. What does Moses mean? Give you a clue. What did he do? Well done. Deliverer. Uh, and Ruth is derived from the name that means a friend. So each of these names in the Bible speak into a particular situation and explains something of how God used these individuals. And it's no good different with God himself. You'll be familiar with Exodus chapter 3, where God reveals himself to Moses out of the burning bush. And I'm going to read to us from Exodus chapter 3. Uh, the context is God has called Moses to go to the Israelites, to go to Pharaoh, and to ask for the Israelites to be released out of captivity. And towards the end, Moses is very worried, and he says, well, what am I meant to say to Pharaoh? What is your name? And what does God say? Chapter 3 of Exodus, verse, 15, uh, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That is one of the names of God. I am. Not God who was or God who will be, but God who is. Really significant. Um, in the book of Isaiah, we read, I am the Lord, that is my name. Hugely significant that Jesus has given those names. And that's particularly significant when we come to chapter 18, because we see in this chapter, the great I am, the glorious one that we looked at last week, is betrayed. And not just betrayed by his enemies, but betrayed by one of his disciples. So come to the passage and we'll look at it together. Verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Uh, isn't it significant that at this moment in Jesus' life, a moment of huge, huge significance and importance, what had we seen Jesus was doing in chapter 17? This wonderful prayer that we looked at last week. How often in our own lives, in those moments of great significance, is prayer the last thing that we think about, if we're really honest? Normally we think about action. How am I going to fix a, a, a situation? How am I going to respond? But we often see in Jesus, it's at the times of greatest pressure in his life that he's on his knees, praying. Great example to us from chapter 17. And we read, on the other side of the Kidron Valley was a garden, and he, his disciples, went into it. Now, the walk from the city down the valley to the Kidron Valley in, in the, at the bottom of the valley and then up the other side to the Garden of Gethsemane is not a long walk. If you've ever been to Israel, it wouldn't take you a huge long time. But can you imagine what Jesus is thinking, what emotions are going on in his heart? And what are his disciples thinking as they take this walk in darkness out into the garden? Remember, Jesus has been with them in the upper room. He's been speaking to them. He's been talking about his coming death. Maybe because it's evening time, they, they walk there and there's just complete silence. And they're all thinking about different things. Thinking about where they've been with Jesus. Thinking about all the things he said he's going to do. And how would you be feeling if you were Jesus, knowing exactly where you were headed? 
It's a short walk geographically, but it probably would have felt like a very, very long walk, gradually working their way down the valley and up the other side into the garden. And we know that they get to a familiar place. Look at verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met with his disciples there. The Garden of Gethsemane up on the Mount of Olives is a beautiful, beautiful place. And as you sit there, you can look down over the city. And presumably Jesus would have gone there many times with his disciples or met them there. They'd have sure had barbecues there. They would have talked together. They would have prayed together. Probably in some of the warmer summer evenings, they would have slept there together under the olive trees. It was a very, very familiar place. They'd been at that many times. And yet what's going to happen in this familiar place? Jesus was going to be betrayed. And he's going to be betrayed by one of his friends. Uh, Just cast your mind back uh, to the first time you fell in love. And maybe you asked your boyfriend or your girlfriend to be that boyfriend or girlfriend. I don't know if you can remember where you were. Maybe that first place you shared a kiss with someone. It has a special memory. But can you imagine if at the end of that relationship, when you were convinced it wasn't going to be right for the future, you went back to that special place? where you'd ask that boy or girl to go out with you or ask them to marry you or you'd shared your first kiss with them. Imagine if you went back there and that was the place where you said, I don't think this relationship's going anywhere. (laughs) It'd be a pretty cruel blow, wouldn't it? Because place is significant. How much more then is it really significant here where the Lord Jesus goes to a familiar place where he's built friendship and disciple these men and it's here that he is betrayed? Of course, the betrayal was predicted by Jesus in chapter 13. And if you go back to chapter 12, if you have a Bible, why don't you flip back to chapter 12? Because we get a little insight into the person of Judas long before he actually fulfills this act of betrayal. Come to chapter 12 of John's Gospel. I'll read from verse 4. John 12, verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Just a little note about his motive. All the way back there, he'd planned this. Judas was someone who wanted to give off an impression that he was loyal, that he loved Jesus, he loved other people. But deep down, he was an incredibly selfish man. He put himself first. Well, come back to John chapter 18, verse 3. Judas comes to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now, remember what's going on here. This is Passover. Thousands and thousands of people have flocked into Jerusalem. It's a busy place. Of course, they don't want to arrest Jesus in the crowds. They don't want to cause a scene or a riot. So they wait till Jesus is in a quiet place outside of the city. And of course, they're coming expecting a fight. They come with a detachment of soldiers. They come with lanterns and torches so they can find Jesus in the darkness. And then verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? What's strange about that question? Let me read it again. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, went out and says, who is it that you want? He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows exactly who and what they want. And yet he still asks the question, why? We'll have a look at the next verse because it gives us the answer. 
Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. What Jesus was doing by asking that question is he was setting up the response that he wanted to give. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, and Jesus replied, I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Just think about that. Why in the world would they have drawn back and fallen to the ground when they say, where, where is this man, Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus just goes, I'm he. Think about that. We're going to act this out. I haven't primed Neil, but he's going to help me with this. Simply, it's very simple, Neil. All you need to do is I'm going to pretend to be a stranger. I'm going to walk into the church, and I'm just going to say, I'm looking for Neil Turton. I just want you to raise your hand and go, I am he. Okay? Very easy. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Um, I'm looking for Neil Turton. He's one of the pastors of the church here. Anyone know where he is? I am he. There we go. Very easy. Now, see, nothing's happened when Neil declared that he was he. I am Neil Turton. I am he. I haven't fallen down on the floor. <laughs> I've not been amazed. I've not been shocked. If we'd reverse roles and I was sitting there, he'd walked in and goes, I'm looking for Mark Herbert, and I said, I am he, nothing would have happened. Why does it something happen here? Why do they fall back? The answer is Jesus wasn't simply saying, I'm Jesus Christ. You're looking for me? Here I am. If they couldn't identify him, he was doing something much more significant. I am he. To fall back when his name is spoken was a common thing that would happen throughout the Bible when God reveals himself. Can you think of some examples of that? When the angels who are sent by God come to the shepherds in the field and to announce the birth of Jesus, what happens? The angels are terrified, they fall back. When Jesus, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, what happened? They fell back, he fell back. Whenever God reveals himself in all his glory, people fall back. And here, where the Lord Jesus Christ says, I am he, people fall back because he is revealing himself, not just as, hey, I'm Jesus, are you looking for me? He's revealing himself as God. But then to drive the point home even further, look at verse 7. Again, he says to them, who is it you want? And again, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then go, let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. That's the story. It's a familiar story. It's a sad story. It's a moving story. But here are a few little truths to drive home as we reflect on that story. Three little things we notice about who Jesus is. The first one is that this story reminds us without any doubt that Jesus is God. Many of you will be familiar with a very famous kind of quote from C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, who once said, uh, I paraphrase, something like, like um, someone who said and did the sort of things that Jesus said and did can only ever be one of three things. He's mad, he's bad, or he's God. You heard that before? He's mad, he's bad, he's God. See, he could be mad. He could just be delusional, making these great claims that he is uh, divine and he can do amazing things. He says to the water, be still. He says to a dead man, get up. He says to a paralyzed man who can't walk, walk. He's mad, he's delusional. But the truth is, you read the Gospels and when he said be still to the storm, what happened? When he said to the, the, the man who was dead, get up, what happened? 
When there was a paralyzed man, he said, walk, what happened? He could be mad, but he proves that he's not because he always does what he says he can do. Lewis then says he could be bad. He could be out to deceive, trying to trick people into be someone he's not. But frauds are easily exposed, aren't they? And people don't gather around them for too long, people who are bad, who are trying to deceive. And yet you look at the character of Jesus in the Gospels. He's the most loving, compassionate, kind, others-centered man who's ever walked the planet. Is he mad? No. Is he bad? No. And then Lewis says, if he's not one of those two things, he has to be God. So many people want to just say Jesus was a nice moral man. He was a good teacher. But C.S. Lewis says he never left that option open to us. He said things that were far too ridiculous just to be a good moral teacher. He, He did things that were far too ridiculous just to be a nice man. He's mad or he's bad or he's God. But he can't be anything else. You have to decide. And we see here that Jesus is God because he reveals himself by taking the very name of God himself. I am he. That is my name. Notice, too, we see that he is in total and utter control. One of the things that captivates me about the person of Christ, no one ever had to coerce him to go to the cross. No one had to persuade him or bribe him. Jesus willingly gave, didn't he? In the little series we did in the evenings a few weeks ago when Wellesley was looking at John 10, what's that wonderful phrase? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is a God who gives generously, complete control. There was no need for a fight. There was no need for the detachment of soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. Come here, Jesus, expecting a fight or a chase. He just said, I am Jesus and you can take me away. And notice the third thing. Not only is he God, not only does he control everything, but notice that he keeps his promises. Verse 9, have a look in our passage. Jesus says, I have not lost any that the Father gave me. And you remember back to last week, chapter 17, verses 12 and 13. They were the verses we looked at when we thought about not only are you precious, but you're protected. If you're a Christian and you've been a Christian a long time, I particularly speak here to some of the older folk. Maybe you've been Christian for decades. Just be amazed afresh this morning that you're still trusting in Christ because he's been incredibly gracious to you. His grace has been at work in your life for decades. And when you first put your trust in Christ, you keep trusting him because he is gracious. And that's a wonderful truth. That is why you're protected. And that is how he will keep you going. So three things about who Jesus is. He is God. He's in complete control. And he keeps his promises. But notice as well, three reasons why he came. Firstly, Jesus came to die. Have a look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, Simon Peter was a, a man who sort of wore his heart on his sleeve. He, he loved Jesus. We know that he denied Jesus, but he had a, a passion. He was a passionate man. And here, where he sees Jesus' life at threat, what does he do? He draws his sword. And I don't think he's sort of having a little nick at the high priest's ear. It looks like he's actually slashing at the high priest with his sword, ready to defend Jesus. And probably the high priest has moved out of the way and has cut his ear. Peter here is looking to defend Jesus because he's expecting a fight. 
Of course, many of the Jews were waiting for their Messiah to come, and the Messiah they were expecting would be a conquering king who they expected maybe to ride into Jerusalem on a great war horse with a great army to overthrow the Romans. Some of the Jews, a particular sect of Judaism, the the Zealots, they already begun these little mini revolts against the Roman rules. They were called the Sicarii, literally the dagger people. But most Jews were waiting for their great liberator, their Messiah. Of course, Jesus is a conquering king, but he's not a conquering king in the mold of the world. He didn't ride into Jerusalem on a great war horse. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He didn't ride into Jerusalem to defeat the Romans, but to give his life at the hands of the Romans. He's a very different kind of a king. And he's a good shepherd, as we've already seen, who lays down his life for his sheep. At Passover, over 250,000 animals would have been slaughtered. It would have been a bloodbath. And it was at that time that Jesus came, not as just another sacrifice on top of all the others, but the sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice to deal with sin forever. He came to die, but he also came to die in our place. Have a look at verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Drinking the cup in the Bible is a metaphor for death. And Jesus here is saying to Peter, shall I not drink that cup? Shall I not go to the cross? Shall I not die? Have you seen this picture before? This is in London. This is called Lady Justice, sitting above the law courts in London. Very famous picture or very famous iconic statue i want you to look at this picture notice three things notice in one hand of lady justice there's a set of scales notice in the other hand is a sword and then notice more subtly that lady justice is blindfolded what's going on with this statue well it helps represent justice doesn't it because in the one hand there's these scales And at a law court, what happens? A person who's being tried stands in the docks and for and against is presented. And if they are found wanting, if the scales don't tip in their balance, what happens? The sword of justice falls on them. And we're thankful that we have a justice system. It's a good thing. Interestingly, Lady Justice has a blindfold because the idea is that the law courts are meant to be objective, impartial. That's why you have a jury And we're very lucky in our democracy that our law courts work like this. So the idea is you have an impartial judge, you pray, who holds in in the balance, in the scales, what a person has done right or wrong. And if they've done something that is wrong, the sword of justice falls on them. Well, think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we make the mistake of sort of caricaturing God's love and saying, well, God's God's a God of love. He's a God of peace. Justice and revenge is not for God. I believe in a God who would always forgive. And yet justice is a function of God's love, isn't it? What parent would ever not discipline a child if they love them? How much more then should God, who's your perfect heavenly father, discipline us? Which means that his loving, his justice is loving. And the two come together. God never sweeps under the carpet wrongdoing. God never just lets it go. There is a penalty But the extraordinary thing here is when Jesus came and died on the cross willingly, he died in our place because that sword of justice deserves to fall on you, deserves to fall on me. But it didn't. It fell on Jesus. 
Why did Jesus come? He came to die. He came to die in our place. And finally, and this brings us full circle to where we ended last week, he came to die in our place because you are precious. Verse 12, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was with the father-in-law Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Jesus was gathering a crowd. The Romans wanted peace. And these Jewish leaders, we read back in chapter 11, were jealous. They were jealous of this big crowd, and they had already plotted to get rid of Jesus. So here, why does he say, let's just kill one man? They're worried that their Judaism is going to be wiped out. And they say, look, if we can prove to the Romans that we're prepared to get rid of this one man who's causing a bit of a scene, then they won't interfere with us and they won't wipe out the Jewish religion. Just kill one man. It was jealousy that led the Jewish leaders to send Jesus to his death. But I want us to recognize finally as we finish tonight, uh, this morning, that the reason that Jesus came to die and die in our place is because you are precious to him. You know a song that we often sing, Above All Powers. And as we close, I'm just going to read the chorus to us. And I'd just like us to then take a moment of quiet to reflect just on the final line of this chorus. And to take that moment of quiet to reflect on all that we've looked at together this morning as the music group come up to lead us in our final song. But let me read to you the wonderful words that we sing all the time, but perhaps we have never fully understood the extent of what we're singing. Crucified, laid behind the stone, you lived to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled to the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. Let's take a moment of quiet.